Do some weeds. 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 All right. Weeds. Everyone here for weeds. 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 Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the, the Weeds. Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by, by Sarah Cliff and uh, the newly unemployed Ezra Klein. I'm not unemployed. I'm, I'm demoted. Right. You're at large. Happy, at happy large. demotion, Ezra. Thank you. I'm Ezra, very excited about my Ezra, demotion. Ezra at large. Um, How was Germany, Matt? Germany was great. Uh, they had a, a vigorous campaign in which healthcare played no role whatsoever. Uh Nobody campaigned on taking health care from millions of Germans? No, but I mean, honestly, it surprised me. Uh, they, they, they didn't seem to be arguing about that at all. Um, they have their issues. Um, they find American politics a little puzzling these days. I feel uh, like what we said here is going to be puzzling. So I'm just going to say that what we were referring to is that I am no longer editor-in-chief of Vox. I'm now editor-at-large, so I can spend a lot more time doing amazingly fun things like the weeds, and I am thrilled about it. <laughs> All right. So in honor of Ezra's in demotion, of we are going to tackle one of your favorite topics. My official first act as editor-at-large was to read a stack of Congressional Research Service reports about budget reconciliation because budget reconciliation has begun to structure, I think, basically all major legislating efforts in the Donald Trump era, but also has begun to drive legislating more generally. And we've obviously talked about it a lot in context of bills, but but we're going to, in response to a Weeds reader request, sort of tackle it on its own here today. So let me lay out a little bit of the, the background here. Budget reconciliation has not been around for very long. It's a it's a process created in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974, which itself- In the 70s, a- as we know, was it? A crazy time. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot we regret from the 70s. (laughs) So, yeah. So So what is it, Ezra? What is budget reconciliation? So the the background of this is kind of interesting. Richard Nixon had pissed Congress off on a lot of different ways. But one of the ways in which he pissed Congress off was by taking a lot of spending power away from them. He was impounding spending. He was seen as um, abrogating their authority. And so they they passed. What's impounding spending? Oh, it's it's kind of called basically they would appropriate spending and he would not allow it to be spent right. through the agencies. So they passed the Congressional Budget Act of 74, which included a lot of different measures meant to give them more control of the process and, and also strengthen their hand in negotiations with the executive. Um, it's around this time, I believe actually in this act, but I, I haven't checked this, the Congressional Budget Office is created. But but budget reconciliation comes into play here too. And basically budget reconciliation is a fast-track budget process by which they can reconcile their spending and uh, taxing. And in doing, it gets to go through a, a quick process in the Senate and in the House. It can't be filibustered in the Senate, which is really the key piece of this. And there's very little debate, only 20 hours. Um, pretty quickly, people begin to feel that budget reconciliation is being overused, that it's sort of technical purpose, which is simply, again, to like reconcile what Congress is actually doing at the end of the year with what they thought they were going to do at the beginning of the year, is that that is not being honored in how it's being used. So temporarily, Congress adopts something named after uh, Senator Byrd called the Byrd Rule. And the Byrd Rule is a multi-pronged test to see if something should be put under budget reconciliation. This is adopted in 1985. Um, it is extended and modified and sort of comes into the shape we know it today and made permanent in 1990. So when we talk about budget reconciliation, the real thing we end up talking about here is the bird rule, because the bird rule governs what can go into budget reconciliation. 
Uh, so I'm going to just run through the process of that real quick, and then we'll take a breath and, and we can get out of the get out of these weeds a bit. Budget reconciliation itself has two steps. First, you have to the House and Senate have to create reconciliation instructions, which basically say here's what we are going to do, how much we plan to spend, what we plan to do with this budget reconciliation uh, legislation, and then they have to actually write the legislation itself that accomplishes those goals and adds specifics and details and where that money gets spent and how it gets spent and all the rest of it. So the key things about the bird rule, um, the, one of the, the interesting things is you can't do anything to Social Security and budget reconciliation. That's just there. It's not that way for Medicare or Medicaid or anything else, but Social Security you can't touch under the bird rule. But the other really big thing is that to qualify for budget reconciliation, it cannot increase the deficit after 10 years. Um, and the second thing, and this is the really key one, is that anything in budget reconciliation supposedly has to be changing spending or has to be changing uh, taxation. Now, you might say, well, everything on some level down the road, like uh, with the flap of a butterfly's wings, ends up doing that. So the bird will has this line where it says those changes cannot be merely incidental to the provision, right? So changes in spending and taxation uh, on themselves are not enough. To qualify for budget reconciliation, it needs to be directly changing um, the budget. It needs to actually be seen by the parliamentarian as something that is actually about how much the government spends or how much it taxes. I think like a good example from the Obamacare debate that kind of crystallizes this is um, defunding my parenthood. That right. technically changes the budget, but it's very clear to the parliamentarian, like the reason you're defunding Planned Parenthood is not really about the budget. It's a different policy change. So I think that's one where you kind of see that come to life. And that was struck out of some previous versions of the Senate bill. So basically what you have happening over the last couple of decades is as Congress becomes more polarized and the filibuster becomes really constant, uh, different uh, sessions of Congress and presidents have looked to budget reconciliation as maybe a way they can get their big ticket items through. So, so Bill Clinton thought about doing Clinton care through budget reconciliation. Byrd was actually serving in the Senate then and was like, no, you're, you're not going to get that done. Uh, so he didn't do that. He backed off. It, budget reconciliation ends up getting really exploded into new form under George W. Bush, because what Bush does is he puts trillions of dollars of tax cuts through budget reconciliation. And this was a big deal. The idea that you would do massive deficit-busting tax cuts through budget reconciliation was totally abnormal in the Senate. Um, there had been people who had kind of tried to get there, but but nothing like that had really happened before at that level. But because they, <laughs> these tax cuts were not paid for, Bush does something really weird, and it's something that's coming back in a funny way now, where they create a 10-year sunset. So basically, the tax cuts totally blow up the deficit for 10 years, and then they all disappear. Um, that's how we got that tax cliff under Obama, because that was the Bush tax cuts expiring after 10 years. Obama expands reconciliation again a little bit at the end of Obamacare. They didn't do Obamacare through reconciliation, but right at the very end, when they only had 59 votes in the Senate, they kind of polished it off. They they made some specific changes in what they called a reconciliation sidecar in one of those amazing little Washington ne neologists. Neologisms? How do you say that word? Neologisms. Neologisms. They also um, completely revamped how student loans work in yes. budget as, as a, yeah. like a sidecar to the sidecar. Yeah, which is super weird. A little so sidecar. both parties have been expanding this, but now we're, it's really come into full flowering in in the Donald Trump era and this Republican Congress. Republicans are trying to do both health care and tax reform through budget reconciliation. They're doing both processes from the beginning. They're trying to make both processes permanent so they don't have to do these weird sunsets. Although um, for reasons nobody really understands, Graham Cassidy does have a sunset, uh, even though it doesn't appear to need one. So now, and this is where I'll, I'll end this long, <laughs> complicated explanation. The thing I, I really want people to understand here is that budget reconciliation has become the way 
we do major signature legislation in America. It has become the primary legislative vehicle by which presidents increasingly try to pass their, 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 their main initiatives. Um, it's getting more and more like that every year. Uh, the ways they do that are getting further and further and further away from the budget reconciliation process's initial idea. This is in large part because the filibuster has become omnipresent in the Senate. It didn't used to be that way. But now if you can only pass things with 60 votes and you don't have 60, budget reconciliation is your only option. But the real problem with that is that it means you write shitty legislation because a lot of things can't go through reconciliation. So you end up writing laws that have um, a lot of workarounds. And so you end up passing worse legislation through a process not built for that legislation in order to circumvent the normal rules of the Senate, which nobody actually seems interested in just changing. It's a very, very weird way to run the most powerful nation on earth. Yeah, it is very much. And I think kind of like to zoom out a little bit from the rules, one of the reasons you have this happening is that there's there's less a majority can do in Congress right now with less bipartisan work. It is harder with just having your simple majority to pass anything that you either are, either are stuck on legislation because you have right now, like the Republicans have 52 votes. And there are very few things, you know, we could, I think we could come up with in this room that we think, oh yeah, that is a chance of moving through regular order. Um, maybe, you know, certain aid packages or things like that. But the list is very short. So you start seeing, you know, I think the Senate rules, you know, you've looked at them more, but as I understand them, Ezra, are really designed to protect the minority, to give the minority a lot of power in the chamber that, you know, without those 60 votes, you can't move a lot of things. But there has been a movement towards giving the minority less power. It is less easy for the minority to obstruct business when you are moving through the reconciliation process. Um, There's a really, if you really want to get in the weeds on this, um, I recently read a book by Molly Reynolds at the Brookings Institute. It's an entire book about the reconciliation process. Um, it's called Exceptions to the Rule and basically charting how... That's an exciting title. Exciting title. <laughs> um, for Reed's listeners, it might be. But it's basically charting how the exceptions have become the norm. And, you know, I think you see this playing out in the healthcare debate right now where you just end up in, like, some weird legislation. Republicans are not pursuing the bills they would if, you know, they weren't working with the reconciliation process. Um, The thing that they really want to do is deregulate the insurance market. But it is very, very hard to convince the parliamentarian that, you know, allowing insurance companies to charge older people higher premiums is somehow budgetary in nature. The things that Republicans want to do are very ill-suited to the reconciliation process, but they're being driven that way, um, you know, in because that's the only process available. One of the things I do find most bizarre about this is the respect for certain rules, but not others. I I think, you know, if the people who invented reconciliation back in the 1970s, like, looked at what is happening now, you know, under both administrations, like you said, they'd say, like, that's not reconciliation. This was supposed to be, you know, some budgetary tweaks going on. But you have, you know, on the one hand, the willingness to take the reconciliation process to the extremes it wasn't really meant for, but also a abiding by, like, some Senate rules you you don't really have to. Like, one is the role of the parliamentarian, for example. The parliamentarian, like Ezra said, will rule on bird issues. They'll say, you can't defund Planned Parenthood, you can't change the rules to charge insurance, to charge older people higher premiums for insurance. The Senate Republicans have every right to overrule and say, we disagree with that ruling, we think it fits within the bird rule, and move forward with these changes that they want to make. 
But there's very little support for doing that. There's a little bit. I think Ted Cruz, for example, has suggested this strategy uh-huh. of just like, don't listen to the parliamentarian. It's kind of bizarre to see, you know, this respect for these like very technical rules for these, not even rules, like traditions of the Senate that you listen to the parliamentarian while also, you know, totally, you know, saying the reason we can't do it as the parliamentarian, but we can do all this other stuff through reconciliation that the process wasn't made for. There's a lot of reverence for certain Senate process, but a lack of reverence for, you know, what reconciliation was first meant for. And there's a sort of a a larger question that I think Sarah's getting at here of like, what is it that the key actors in the Senate are trying to accomplish, right? Because you talk about rules and exceptions to rules, and you talk about what's what's in reconciliation and what's not. And when Senate Democrats were, were handling this under Obama in 2009, I, I, there was a certain amount of kind of trickery, but, but I think I understand what they were getting at, right? So some people, environmentalists, raised the idea that, well, maybe there should be reconciliation instructions that allow for a cap-and-trade or a carbon tax program. Um, and the reason they wanted reconciliation instructions for that was that they wanted such a program to happen. Uh, but Senate Democrats did not want to be asked by activists to vote on an unpopular carbon tax or cap-and-trade scheme. So the way they handled that was by not writing those reconciliation instructions in so that then they could turn around in March and say, oh, well, we quote-unquote have to get 60 votes for any kind of climate change deal. So that means it quote-unquote has to be bipartisan. And in that sense, like, they, they didn't want to do it. Right. Just politically speaking, they did not want to have Joe Biden cast a tie breaking vote on a 50 50 climate change bill with tons and tons of liberal activists yelling at centrist red state Democrats to to get on board. So they used or worse to have lost the vote to have all these people cast the vote anyway. Yeah, yeah. Right. So they were using the filibuster rule to, quote unquote, make it be impossible for them to do anything other than a bipartisan negotiation because what they wanted was a bipartisan climate bill, right? And on healthcare, there was a greater level of partisan fervor, and they were more willing to say, look, if push comes to shove, we're going to do this on a party-line basis. So they did write those reconciliation instructions in. What's become strange about the Republicans is that it's not, it's not clear what's happening. Democrats did not succeed in getting bipartisan support for their climate change and immigration bills or for their health care bill. But in all three cases, they made a good faith effort. And in one case, they had a clear view on health care. Look, if we can't get a bipartisan bill, we will do a partisan bill. And on climate, they made a clear choice. If we can't get a bipartisan bill, we're not going to do a bill, right? And then activism, internal party dynamics, it eventually changed. Republicans are in this weird state where not just on healthcare, but on all topics, they are only considering exclusively partisan measures, but they are not changing the filibuster rules in a way that would facilitate actually governing in that matter. So they're creating a situation where all of their proposals stand no chance of getting any Democratic support. But then they're constantly going back to their voters and being like, well, we can't do this because we don't have the 60 votes. And they're not saying like, Okay, because there's you could say either it is so important to defund Planned Parenthood that we are going to speak to Democrats about making large concessions to them on subjects that aren't Planned Parenthood to get the 60 votes. Or you could say it's so important to defund Planned Parenthood that we're going to abolish 
filibustering, but they're not doing either of those things. And between like large donors, grassroots activists, Mitch McConnell, moderates like Lisa Murkowski, someone is running a game on someone else. And it's not at all clear, like, who it is and on whom. And Donald Trump's tweets on this, like, where every once in a while he's going to be like, we can't pass all these bills if we need 60 votes for everything. And, like, that, that is correct. Like, they cannot... The kinds of legislation they are envisioning cannot be done under these rules, and yet they refuse to either change their legislative goals or change the rules. Except, and I do think this is the exception that that sort of proves what you're saying— they changed the filibuster rule on the Supreme Court uh, nomination of Judge Gorsuch. Right. Right. They had a situation there. There was a, a an important Supreme Court nomination. Democrats were going to filibuster it because of the way Merrick Garland had been treated. And like McConnell, like instantly it was like, well, <laughs> that's the end of that filibuster, right? They over, you know, they went through the nuclear option. They changed it with 52 votes or whatever it was. And, and that was that. I do want to go, I do want to zoom out though and, and go back to something Sarah said, which is, you know, the filibuster being there to protect the minority, because that's true to an extent, but not in the way the minority uses it now. Uh, I, I'm always really amazed. I went back, I was doing some research on the on the filibuster and, and the background out of it, and I think it was, I, I want to say David Brookman who sent me this, who's a, a great political scientist, but whether it was or not, um, there is a letter written by Lyndon Johnson's Senate liaison, so like his head of Senate strategy. And if you're running Senate strategy for President Lyndon Johnson, like you are good at the Senate. You get how it works. And this guy is um, assessing the outcome of the 1964 election, and he's talking about Medicare. And he says, look, if everybody who has who we expect is to be in support of this is there and present and voting, Medicare is going to pass with 55 votes. And what is so remarkable to me about that moment, because again, 1964, we're not talking about, or maybe this is 65 he's writing this in. We're not talking about a thousand years ago. He doesn't say, if all of our people are present and voting, we have 55 votes and Medicare will get filibustered and fail by five votes. He says it will pass with 55 votes. Imagine today the idea that you would pass something like Medicare with 55 votes and no filibuster, right? It's unimaginable. In the end, Medicare passes actually by a lot more than that. But it was not the case before roughly the early 90s um, and, and beginning, you know, the, the yeah, really in the early 90s, that you could expect that everything in the Senate needed 60 votes. And so what happened is real abuse of the filibuster. Well, just to understand correctly, the filibuster was was there. It there, wasn't, yes. It was just not being, it was like dormant. Not only was it there, I, I want to go further with this, not only was it there, it was actually harder to break. It, it was under Carter, if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, that they brought the, the rule for cloture for breaking a filibuster down from you needed two-thirds of the Senate down to three-fifths. So back then in 65, you could have filibustered even more easily. Uh, but people weren't doing that, right? The norm of the Senate, the filibuster was I mean, used, under- and it was used constantly against civil rights right. legislation. That's what was happening. And in some ways, Southern Democrats and, and and some Republicans were protecting it to be used against civil rights legislation, right? They didn't want to overuse it because then they might not have it to continue oppressing African-Americans. I mean, it's it not a good time in American politics. And like the the 
history of the filibuster is really ugly. And it's always being clear, right, in this the sense that it was protecting minority rights is that it was protecting the right of a minority <laughs> of senators to block civil rights legislation. It wasn't protecting the rights of, like, Action, mi- yes. minority groups in the American yes. population. So, and by the way, in this period, for this reason, you do have a lot of efforts to change a filibuster. That's part of why the culture rule goes down. Anyway, the point is that the rise of budget reconciliation is a response to the really, really widespread abuse and and now omnipresence of the filibuster. It is now known, you know, people will say all the time you need 60 votes to get anything done in the Senate, which is more or less true. It didn't used to be like that, and that's actually not a workable equilibrium that anybody likes. So you have this budget reconciliation process, which is also not a usable, workable equilibrium that anybody likes. I mean, the Republicans are writing healthcare legislation that is quite a lot worse from their perspective than the legislation they would write if they would just go through a, a normal process. And the reason they won't do that is they don't want to try to get Democratic votes, and um, they can't, and they don't have 60 votes. But I, I, the thing I really want to keep pounding in in this conversation is that the Senate, the House, Congress right now, it is broken. This is a broken way to do legislating. It is a way to do legislating in which they are not fixing the problem and their workaround is not a good workaround. And so in a sort of continuous way, we've accepted this, uh, this equilibrium where we are going to get either very little big legislation passed, which maybe is fine, um, or the legislation that does pass is going to be written very strangely. The one final point I will make on this, though, is that I do think in a way Republicans don't totally understand yet, this equilibrium favors liberals quite a bit if it favors anybody. Now, maybe it doesn't because it's hard to get anything passed, but to the extent you're going to do anything through budget reconciliation— what liberals tend to want to do, they're they're more comfortable with solving government problems by taxing and spending. Um, Republicans often want to do things in more complicated ways that require uh, regulation or deregulation or um, just other ways, right? They don't want to do everything through the taxing and spending powers. So it is pretty simple to create a Medicare buy-in program through budget reconciliation. It is almost impossible to set up a consumer-driven healthcare system built around private insurance through budget reconciliation. And so that is a structural difference that is going to advantage the left um, in in way in, over time, um, but not in a way that leads to a, a good process. I think that's true on the specifics of healthcare policy. But I think if you look more broadly, right, that Republicans are comfortable with a world in which when they control the executive branch, all business regulation is de facto repealed because they don't enforce any rules on anything at all. And everyone can just get away with everything because the government is staffed with nincompoops. And then when Democrats control Congress, you can't pass any rules governing anything because it'll be filibustered. I mean, I think if you believe that Republicans care about creating a consumer-directed healthcare system to blah, 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 blah. But, like, they just don't. And, like, budget reconciliation lets you pass enormous deficit finance tax cuts on rich people, which is very important to Republicans. Uh, they've given up the ghost over the past week. But even there, they, they've been trying in this whole process. They don't like the fact that their tax cuts expired after 10 years. And, and part of it, they don't like yeah. the fact that the part of their tax cuts they liked the most, which were like the capital gains tax cuts and rich yeah, people I tax mean, cuts I, went I away. And so that, that's been bad for them. It's, too. A, it's, a, it's a bad system overall. But I, I think... I think it's not – one reason that the system only changes slowly is that it's not obvious who it's 
advantaging, you know, or it would change more quickly. Right. I think like one tells the fact Republicans haven't changed the rules. Like Matt was saying, like right. if you really thought like what a like a like Obamacare is collapsing and like it is like a plague on the American people, you would you could see like a hypothetical Senate leader saying like we need to change these rules because this is so, so important to us. I don't know. I, I think I kind of agree with Matt that the that the filibuster has been a nice crutch for Republicans to say, like, we just can't do this thing, that they're actually, like, a little bit unsure about whether they want to do it in the first place. Well, they think, I mean, a lot of, one thing that's interesting here is that a lot of these rules changes are justified by what they think the next majority is going to do, right, what they think their opponents will do in the future. All the Republicans in the Senate I talked to think Democrats will get rid of the filibuster, Right. Harry Reid weakened it in 2013. Then McConnell weakened it again. We've really reestablished, which we already knew, but have reestablished in this era, the idea that uh, even though Rule 22, which is a filibuster rule, says it can only be changed, I believe it's with a two thirds vote. um, In fact, you can't do that. And 51 votes can change anything you want in the Senate using the nuclear option. And so Republicans really think Democrats are going to take out the filibuster, which is one way they justify what they're doing with budget reconciliation. Um, But on the other hand, they're pretty afraid of that. And they're afraid of that both because they have fears about, you know, demographics, right? Republicans are out of power in the Senate for for a number of years. And, you know, they, you know, whether or not they're right, they they do believe Democrats are going to be back in the majority, uh, you know, reasonably soon. Um, And second, because they do know the Democrats want to pass a lot of laws and um, are in some ways like better at writing laws and quicker at writing laws than they are. And that if they're able to do it with 51 votes on whatever they want, uh, you'll have like the whole Bernie Sanders agenda in place by like March of (laughs) (laughs) the presidential, you know, by the end of March of the president of the next Democratic presidential administration. But I think this goes to the question of like, who does the filibuster rule clearly help, right? And the issue is, It's not Republicans, it's not Democrats, it's not liberals, it's not conservatives. It's senators who are representing opposite party states, right? So, like, if Bernie Sanders sweeps into office in in 2021 with 51 Senate seats behind him, Claire McCaskill is going to be really glad or is going to be really hoping that she can go back to the White House and say, oh, we, quote unquote, can't pass all these bills that you promised, right? Like, it is not possible to do it. I'm. Not, it, it's not that I am refusing to do it. It's that it cannot be done as a problem of metaphysics. Because then she can, <laughs> then she can go home and, like, not have liberals hating her, but also not have, like, the key swing voters in Missouri hating her, right? Like, those are the, the winners in, in reconciliation, is people who would like to avoid tough votes. And they can say, the only way to do this is to have a big meeting and some gangs and some blah, blah, blah. And you see how much it changes things, right? I mean, when there was a meaningful number of Republican senators who were willing to go along to go in the, the Gang of Eight immigration bill, right, which a big change to immigration policy that would have, I think, a great bill, I should say. Like, I am a super enthusiastic about this bill. But, like, it would have given legal status to 11 million undocumented people. It would have increased future flows of immigration. It was, like, a big 
radical change to American immigration policy. And like Joe Manchin was on board for it. And the reason Joe Manchin was on board for it is not that uh, he's super left wing. It's not that West Virginia is super left wing. And it's not that this legislation was incredibly moderate. It's that because it had high profile Republican backing, it was a big bipartisan deal. And like senators are very comfortable like getting in on big bipartisan deals. And they're very uncomfortable when Democrats tried to do DREAM Act as like a partisan measure, you know, all kinds of uh, moderate Democrats fr- from red states were like really leery of it, even though it was a much more modest, much more sor- sort of timid kind of thing. So, I mean, you can game this out in terms of the demographics of the different states and, and blah, 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 blah. But there's a lot of strategic ambiguity in American politics, right? Where the fact that you can't pass bills lets senators like say things to both people. I think the greatest example of this actually was the, um, what was it? Uh, EFCA, the like pro-union organizing bill. Employee Free Choice Act. Employee Free Choice Act, right? Um, So what happened there was that like every Democratic candidate for Senate in 2008 endorsed this bill uh, that was like big pro-labor, you know, long sought reform. And they all endorsed it with the assumption that they wouldn't be able to pass the bill. Uh, but Democrats uh, overperformed in the 2008 elections and won more seats than they had thought they were going to win. And so they faced this embarrassing reality that they had 60 votes in favor of this legislation that actually moderate Democrats didn't want to pass, but they had all said they were going to pass it. So there was this like awkward shuffling around before a few of them were like, oh yeah, we're not actually going to do that. Um, but it was like the ability to make implausible promises to the base is very valuable to the like pivot point Senators, and you see the Gorsuch difference there, right? That like Republicans were like not kidding. Like they really like Neil Gorsuch. They really like conservative judges, like all of them. They all think that's really good. So there was no problem changing the rules, right? But on all this other stuff, it gets very fuzzy because the members actually don't want to pass the policies. they Members want to be able to endorse policies without actually passing them. And I guess, like, the test of that is if we get something that people want to endorse and there's, like, enough momentum behind it to to actually change the rule. So I think of, like, I look at something like Medicare for All, which now has 17 co-sponsors or even, like, a Medicare buy-in, which seems like, again, it would be a kind of shoddy version of it. But, like, you, we have tested the limits of reconciliation, and it seems like you could do some of those things, like Ezra was saying, through the process and—, and I guess the thing I wonder about looking forward is what I think at some point, like there was with Gorsuch, there will be something that is a priority enough that the party wants to do it enough that there's enough backing in the way that like, I think there's always been a bit of lukewarmness around the Republican repeal bills that there will be a, a decision made to change the rules. And that might disadvantage the more moderate senators, but might be thought to be the thing we need to do in order to like actually pass this policy we really want to pursue. The one that, you know, because I cover healthcare, that jumps out at me is some kind of expansion of public insurance. That doesn't seem super far-fetched to me. And in a way, you know, I think it would benefit Democrats more to be able to make those sort of policies in in those sort of, um, in a 50-vote situation. But can't they do that stuff just through budget reconciliations? I mean, like, I think it'd be really hard to do, like, a Medicare for all or, Medicare buy-in through I don't Medicare, know. Medicare, why what would what would stop you on Medicare buy-in? A Medicare for yeah. all 
it's possible like making it illegal for employers to offer the same and like that I can totally see yeah. getting bird bathed, but uh but Medicare buying I think you could just do. Yeah, why couldn't I've, you? I, I mean, I'm like, I'm no parliamentarian, but, <laughs> but it's, it's a big, it's a big policy effort that is like not made for that type of process. The other thing though, so I'm going to um, partially dissent here on, uh, I, I take Matt's point. Um, I don't think that's the main reason the filibuster sticks around. I think that's true to some degree. Um, I also think it, it goes the other way too. For instance, I think a lot of Democrats would have been, moderate Democrats would have been a lot better off in the 2010 election if there had been no filibuster and they could have passed more stimulus in what was clearly a, a really weakened economy. So I do think that stuff can can go both ways. Sometimes it's good for these Democrats to not be able to be forced into the promises well, they need. Moderate Democrats believed that balanced budgets were super popular, right? I mean, they have like but a, they would have, they they have would like have a, they have like a, a brain more. disease about this. <laughs> but they would have passed more stimulus um, and, and done longer term budget. Uh, uh, reduction. The other thing, I mean, Obamacare is another good example of this, where I think that if they could have done this with 51 votes in the Senate, they would have had more subsidies and Obamacare would be a more popular bill, right? I just think they would have had a little bit more running room. They would have been able to finish it off more cleanly. They might have had a public option in there. They would have had a public option in there if they could have done the 51. And it just would have been a more popular bill. Like it would be working better and like people would like it better. So I actually, I agree with you that that's a conventional wisdom um, for for this, but I, I'm not sure it's true. But to the, to the point Sarah made, there's a really interesting concept of how Senate rules get changed by a, a political scientist named Stephen Smith called Senate Syndrome. And basically he argues that what's happening in the Senate over a long period of time is that you're in a consistent cycle where one side breaks a norm or breaks a rule and the other side breaks it further in retaliation. And I think what we're seeing right now is like Senate syndrome around the filibuster. So I take the expansion of budget reconciliation, um, although done by Republicans uh, around the filibuster, uh, who were also the ones, uh, you know, who led the way in abusing the filibuster. But what happened in 2013, uh, where Senate, where Harry Reid and the Democrats constrained the filibuster on nominees, but not on the Supreme Court nominees, was extremely angering to Republicans, even though they had almost eliminated it on uh, Supreme Court nominees in 2005. But okay, so Democrats actually get that done in 2013. So then in sort of Senate syndrome, like retaliation, it does not feel like a big deal to Republicans to do it on the Supreme Court in, in 2013. 17. But now, to Democrats, to whom that does feel like a big deal, uh, I think that has further weakened the positioning of the filibuster. They, they're looking at Republicans. They feel a huge number of norms have been broken, not just around the filibuster, but around budget reconciliation in the health care bill, around hearings, around public debate, around CBO scores, around everything. And I think to the extent you're going to see someone come in, I don't think the only thing going on there is how much do they care about the bill. There are a lot of bills that one side or the other cares about that have not led them to break the filibuster. It is how how much they feel their political opponents have already broken the rules, thus giving them license to break them further, and also how much they fear their opponents doing it in the future, thus that they had better get there first and get the advantage while they still can. I, there, there is a weird norm and relationship piece of this that is just, it doesn't make sense. Um, I think that there are all kinds of like kind of logical ways to explain how the Senate works, but sometimes it just works because it takes people time to get to the point of being willing to break tradition. They have to get angry enough. Um, and the two sides sort of like they're escalating each other's anger every single term. And that's how we're going to lose the filibuster. In the meantime, though, we are legislating in the 
most nonsense way possible, making the worst bills with the worst process in a way that everybody knows is bad. And I just really want to keep saying nobody on either side of the aisle is trying in any way to fix it. It is a crazy thing about the Senate that no matter what senator you talk to on either side of the aisle, they will tell you the Senate works terribly. You ask, what are you doing about it? And the answer is nothing. (laughs) Should we talk about one of those nonsense bills after our break? Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Parachute. A parachute makes the world's softest and most comfortable sheets. Uh, they, they sent me a set. Uh, I really like them. You know, they they feel good. They look good. And, and it's just, it's like high quality material. Uh, so up on their website, they got thousands of positive reviews you can see for yourself. And, and they have this My Parachute Home hashtag. There's a little cult following around it. There's thousands of submissions from happy customers who are sleeping better and, and they want to share their experience with the world. Uh, you check that on Instagram for a lot of cool design inspiration. You can, you can see what they look like. Uh, see how people are using them. They're really comfortable sheets. Uh, so to get your own set, you visit parachutehome.com slash weeds. They offer free shipping and returns. Uh, it comes with a 60-night trial. They're really sort of confident. Uh, so, but if, if you don't love them, you just send it back, no questions asked. Uh, but the reason they offer this is they're confident you're going to love them. Uh, so you check it out. It's parachutehome.com slash weeds for free shipping and free returns. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Weeds, then check out How I Built This. Every week, host Guy Raz talks to people behind some of the most inspiring companies and movements in the world. They're bringing you stories of incredible persistence, grit, and insight. You can find it on your NPR One app or wherever you find your podcasts. An entire new healthcare bill arrived and died while I was in Germany for six days. It died when I was in Vermont for like 18 hours. So, okay, it's not dead. Every healthcare bill, though, collapses as soon as you go out of town. It's weird. I'm going to Baltimore on um, September 30th, so that'll be the final. The very last day. Oh, the very last day of reconciliation? Oh, that's very nice of you. I mean, it's it's kind of you to save Obamacare. Is Baltimore far enough away to come? I don't know. It's really a test of the theory, (laughs) I'd say. So, okay. So, last episode, we talked all about Graham Cassidy. It was the, the new hotness in town. And this week, it looks pretty, pretty close to dead. It is but not they like, changed the bill. They changed the bill podcast. since our last podcast. It is not officially dead. But we'll we'll talk about kind of like where things are. Things, you know, we're taping this at like 11 a.m. Tuesday. This might be super dead by the time you listen to this um, 4 p.m. Tuesday, but you, you'll have the joy and satisfaction. You'll really understand the latest dead version of Cram Cassidy. So what they did actually felt like very reminiscent of the path that most of the Senate Republican bills have taken towards failure. So, you know, you start with the bill that, like we talked about last week, is a lot more radical than the other repeal bills. It essentially block grants the entire amount of Affordable Care Act funding. We've seen some analyses come out since we taped that episode that just shows how badly certain states are hurt. It's an overall, like, $200 billion budget cut to overall Obamacare funding. And then it's just distributed in vastly different way, taking... yeah, and then Medicaid cuts on top of that. Yeah, so so t- it takes money from states that have enrolled a lot of people that have Medicaid expansion, sends it to states like Mississippi, Alabama that have done literally nothing to implement the Affordable Care Act, and then it puts a per capita cap on Medicaid. So all of that taken together, according to Avalier, a health research firm, leads to um, two hundred fifteen billion dollars in budget cuts. So that's that's Graham Cassidy one point Graham Cassidy the the sequel is. Um, much like action movies, not actually that different, just changed a little bit around the edges. You have some weakening of insurance regulations to please the Rand Pauls and Ted Cruz's of the world. So in 
Graham Cassidy 1.0, you had to apply for a waiver and say, you know, I, I want to let insurance companies charge older people more, charge sick people more. In um, the federal government would have to give you a waiver to do that. Um, in the new version, it's um, very little oversight. It essentially says you just have to send the federal government a description of the rules you are getting rid of and a description of how you plan to um, protect people with pre-existing conditions. There's no mechanism to say that's not a very good description or I don't think that plan really protects people with pre-existing <laughs> conditions. You just kind of like send your letter to the federal government saying like, here's the plan for Mississippi. And that's really the way you get rid of some pretty key Obamacare regulations. Um, then you have these like funds that are put in very complex funding formulas, but are essentially buy-offs to key states. So my favorite example of this is there's, um set, there is, well, we'll start with the $750 million each year for states that expanded Medicaid late, the most recent states um, to expand Medicaid, it turns out there are two states that are eligible for this money. Um, Montana and Senator Cassidy's home state of Louisiana. Wait, I'm sorry. One of the measures is if you expanded Medicaid late, you Well, you get need more money? money to catch up, right? Yes. Oh, I know. you're fucking well, kidding and me. So, so what is the state that has most recently expanded Medicaid? It's Louisiana in 2015. But what's double hilarious about this is that Cassidy's wrote this bill from the beginning. Right. And like the initial version of the legislation was like for no good reason, a like nuclear attack on Louisiana. Right. And so then he's come up with this like genuinely like 23rd hour like modification so that like now his bill doesn't screw over his home state. But like, why did he write a bill that screwed over his home state? And then you see like there's more money going to low density states like that's Alaska. Alaska gets some extra money. And there's some other changes like through they're not named like you wouldn't see Arizona or Maine like mentioned, but it meant to go to, um, I think, lower income states is one of them. But it's essentially the same. Like there's a reason you're not seeing Murkowski or Collins get on this board. Avalier put out a new analysis of the new Republican bill um, just this morning, Tuesday morning. And they find so first bill, 215 billion in budget cuts. Second bill, 205 billion in budget cuts. Like we're not really moving the needle. So that's why you're not really seeing, um, you know, senators on either side, like Rand Paul is still super against it. We heard Susan Collins on Monday say she was against it. No changes. McCain is against it. McCain is against it. That's the three, you know, you need to sink it. But it turns out this long national nightmare may be far from over because there's now a discussion about using the 2018 budget reconciliation instructions, not just to tackle tax reform, but to tackle tax and health care in the same fell swoop. So the Graham-Cassidy bill looks pretty dead, but thank you to the you know reconciliation process we just talked about, there's at least some level of support to keep this running through basically this time next year. Which I, I will say, in, in a way, makes sense. I mean, this was a, a very artificial deadline. What I do think is interesting, Andrew Prokop had a good piece on this on, on our site this morning. It's pretty hard to do what they're going to try to do in budget reconciliation next year. As, as Andrew puts it, the way you have to write the instructions, because it can only be one bill, mm-hmm. um, you would have to have a sort of taxation side of the bill and a spending side of the bill. That if you're going to do tax reform, <laughs> if they can figure out tax reform, right, which is a huge if in all this. Um, and also this bill is opposed 
it's just opposed by people, right? It's not popular enough to pass in its current form, so they have to figure out something else there, too. But if you're going to do it, you have to do a half of the bill that combines both all the spending changes from tax reform and um, uh, health care and all the tax changes from tax reform and health care. It's a very complicated kind of bill to write. It would probably fall afoul of all kinds of bird rule stuff just by sheer kind of legislative technical difficulty. It isn't to say they won't do it, and it definitely isn't to say they can't do it. It's just to say it's going to be a big pain in the ass. And they currently have not explained how they're going to get over the central hump, which is that they keep writing these bills that are not well-liked enough to pass. And one other thing just to throw into the mix, we got like our outdated partial CBO score yesterday, which they haven't had enough time to score Graham Cassidy because it's so different from the other Republican bills. But CBO estimated that millions fewer would have coverage. You know, we don't know. Uh, Other outside estimates, Brookings estimates it's 21 million. CAP estimates it's 30 million. Center for American Progress. So it's probably in the range of the other bills. So we're at a point where millions would lose coverage. At least three senators we have on record opposing it. um, Others waffling a little bit. And pretty much every healthcare group like lined up against it. One of the things that's been a little bit different about this bill than the other ones is the fury it has gotten from like a lot of coalitions I didn't expect. Um, the insurance companies and the hospitals and key patient groups all signed on to a letter saying like this is a terrible bill and it should not pass. Um, you saw all 50 Medicaid directors. So this is Republican Medicaid directors. Um, signed on to a letter saying, this is a bad bill. We cannot make this Medicaid part work. Confusingly, in including our Medicaid directors who were appointed by Republican governors oh, yeah. who have endorsed the bill. No, there's 34, you know, there's 30, you know, 33 Republican governors. Each of them have a Republican Medicaid director. I think 15 of them have endorsed the bill, but all of their Medicaid directors, you know, right. disagree with them at this point. It's really roundly opposed um, by um, you know, any healthcare group you could think of. If you go on Senator Cassidy's site, I think he has a list of like 30-some supporters of this bill, including Donald Trump. Um, Jeb Bush, for some reason, Alan Greenspan is the oddest one I've seen who's endorsed this bill. But you have this like laundry list of um, health groups that oppose it. And, you know, I watched the Graham Cassidy-Sanders-Klobuchar debate last night on CNN. And one of the things Lindsey Graham likes to say a lot is like, this is sticking it to the insurance companies. Insurance companies like hate our bill and that's a good thing. What he won't mention is like literally like hospitals, patients, and like Medicaid directors also think this is a very, very bad bill. So I had a, a really enlightening conversation about this legislation and and the whole dynamic in general uh, at the airport. I, I ran into, yeah, there's about like three dozen Republican senators who have not been in any way involved in this healthcare debate, have had no meaningful public statements of any kind, seemingly no red lines, no priorities. They just vote for every random bill that comes up and say nothing about it. So I, I ran into a staffer for, for one of these senators, and, and I tried to ask her, uh, why is it that your boss keeps voting for dramatic Medicaid cuts that have nothing to do with the Affordable Care Act that just gut Medicaid over the long run. And she uh, told me a bunch of robotic talking points about how, like, a cut relative to baseline isn't a real cut. And I kept trying to say, it's like, you know, like, we're here at the airport. I'm like, I'm super off the record. Like, whatever we want to call it, like, they have this provision 
that exists and it's in all of the bills and it's not related to the Affordable Care Act. So like, what is the purpose of its existence there? And then we got into the new talking points about how, well, it's a choice between this and Bernie Sanders as single payer. And so I was like, no, but like this was in the bills before. So like, what is the reason that it's in the bills? And then we got back to like, you know, I don't think you're characterizing this right. And we just like, it was a frustrating 20 minutes or so in which no answer was forthcoming as to like, why are the bulk of, because again, most Republican senators have not been involved in this process. Most of the money in all of these bills is these Medicaid cuts. It's this like, iceberg floating beneath the surface of like several dozen Republican senators who seem to really want to enact gargantuan long-term Medicaid cuts and won't offer reasons for it. And it's a, it's a, it's like this like dark matter in American politics that I don't really understand. Like the the skinny repeal bill, which did not have that feature, was like so slapdash that even its proponents were saying, well, we, we don't want this bill to pass. But it was like at some point in this process, like you could in theory take a run at this of a bill that did not feature the drastic long-term Medicaid cuts but did have other provisions that you wanted to defend. And, like, nobody has attempted to do that. And I don't don't know, like, I don't know what they are doing. And they are, like, on such a level of, I don't know what there is. There's, like, such a breakdown of, like, Republican Party interactions with the media that it's, like, nobody wants to discuss this, it seems to me, like, on any forum. There's been no... No, like, here's what's really going on. And, and when you do, like, people are just like, you get this sort of like, well, cut relative to baseline isn't a cut, even though it means few, like, people who currently have insurance will be kicked off of the Medicaid rolls. I mean, it is what I, it you, is. You were, you, were, you were gone when this happened, but I asked the same question of um, Lindsey Graham's spokesperson, Kevin Bishop, and he just wrote me back and he said, it was the same question, literally, like, why not, this bill has real merit in its basic idea, why not do it without combining it with these huge cuts? Why not just give states some money that they could actually use to create Obamacare equivalent programs however they wanted. And he told me it'd be a waste of both of our time <laughs> to have that conversation. Which is true. <laughs> that was my experience. You, you did the conversation. <laughs> it was a waste of time. It was not. It was, and I have to say, I used to believe. But there, the, the thing I was going to say there, there this, some of this goes back to reconciliation. There was this kind of like double bank shot play they wanted to do where they were going to save so much money by cutting Medicaid, they could then make the tax cuts permanent. Right. That was my old theory. But now that's like, it's so far gone. And like the whole legislative schedule is so far blown up that I do a little bit wonder if it's not vestigial. Um, and it's also, I think the, the, the other, the other sort of answer I've been able to ferret out a little bit is that to the extent you're going to get a Mike Lee, a Ted Cruz, maybe ever a Rand Paul, your real argument is that, okay, look, we've got this bill that for 10 years, even though it <laughs> de-insures 20 million people, we think we can defend it. But then like, look, long term, it totally cuts the government. It's ideologically really in line. And so they're playing this game where they have a bill they describe, like to listen to Cassidy describe the bill, listen to Graham describe the bill, you would think it was more liberal than Obamacare. Right. You would think it was going to cover more people with better insurance. Also, because Cassie will say it'll cover more people with better right. insurance. Yeah. <laughs> you would think that due to their due to their bald face statements <laughs> of that of that nature. And then they make this complete other argument to the conservatives. And they've ended up in a place where I actually 
think their argument to the conservatives that this is cutting um, government is reasonably persuasive, and it's gotten most of them, except for Rand Paul. Yeah, so can we talk about Rand Paul? <laughs> yeah, we can talk about Rand Paul. But it's not a persuasive argument to, to anyone else because the rest of it is lies. What do you want to? I mean, Rand Paul appears to be objecting to any legislation that cuts Kentucky's Medicaid expansion while endorsing the one repeal bill that didn't cut Kentucky's Medicaid. Like, if you right. if you, if you you did not listen to anything Rand Paul says, but you just look at it, here's a senator from Kentucky, a conservative state, a low-income state, a state with a very large mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion, and you look at Paul is for skinny repeal, which doesn't touch Medicaid, but he's been against every other iteration of reform, you would say, this is a senator. Is he for clean repeal, though? Well, but he says he's for clean <laughs> yes. right? It just... If you just look at his voting record, it, it looks like, like someone lying. who's voting to save Medicaid. And this is like a constant debate in the Vox office. Does Rand Paul just want this to fail because he knows it'd be so bad for the people in Kentucky, so many of them who are on Medicaid? And, and it know, raises the question of what Mitch McConnell is doing. Another question, another senator from Kentucky. It was a lot at stake here. Um and I think one thing so you've seen from Rand in this is like he keeps making like increasingly impossible to meet demands. Right. Um, if you it actually reminds me a lot of like Joe Lieberman's role in the original debate where he like kept they kept trying to please him with different things. And there's an amazing oh, this is so in the weeds of, of the history of healthcare. There's this amazing move on video where, you know, they have them all sock puppet senators and they're like, you know, Joe Lieberman's like, well, I want a pony. Like, I want to be like five inches taller. And they keep like, <laughs> you know, and then you have like Olympia Snow, you know, sock puppet or someone else saying like Max Baucus saying like, we can do that. We can make that happen. Rand Paul, you know, has demanded that the block grant. So this is like wrapping up all the Medicaid and ACA expansion money that that just pot of money not be cut by $200 billion, that it be cut in half. That you take all the money we spend on the exchanges, on the on the expansion, and just cut that in half. And then, like, maybe he'll negotiate with you. He's making these demands that just are not going to be met. And maybe, I, I don't know, like, maybe that's what he really wants in his heart of heart, is that spending to go away. Or maybe he just wants to make some ludicrous demands that are going to stop the process. But to go back to, to what Matt was saying earlier, I mean, if you... What one one th- disagreement I sometimes have with Matt's theories on politics is that I think he's more logical than politics is, and like people are not as good at at acting in their own interests as, as he frames it. But if you did want to take that right, the absolute worst possible thing that could happen to the Republican Party is this bill passes, right? Like it would be a total catastrophe on every level, and yes. like what you really need in any given iteration of it is like three senators to keep that from happening, and like. You know, you can have it coming from different directions and people can, you know, McCain can do it for normal order reasons, regular order reasons, and Collins can do it for coverage and Rand Paul can do it because it's not conservative enough. But on some level, like putting even Kentucky and its specific situation aside, the absolute worst thing that could happen to Republicans is that they accidentally destroy the entire American healthcare system in the way that they're currently planning to do with a bill like that has not gone through a CBO analysis, has not been fixed in any kind of serious process. By the way, because of the way the reconciliation clock works, this is a bill that if they tried to pass it, the House would not have any time to amend it so, because the Senate couldn't then revote on it. So it couldn't even be amended. I mean, this is not a bill like that is ready for prime time at any level. Like we, the latest iteration came out Monday. It would have to pass. And that's Saturday. not the one that was squared. There's an older yeah, one that was scored by CBO. Thing is crazy. The, so yeah, but it's not. The thing that surprises me through all of this is that 
the drive remains, like the dream endures in this, that that there's this discussion about doing healthcare through the 2018 reconciliation process after this kind of like series of bills that pull at 20%. Um, it surprised me like how committed the party seems to be, you know, after going through this train wreck of a year. All right, let's take a break. Come back, white paper it up. There's a ton of online mattress retailers popping up these days, and what they all have is a kind of a one-size-fits-all solution to a better sleep. And guess what? Uh, One-size-fits-all doesn't work. Uh, sleeping is, is really important. It's something you do every day, hopefully, and it's really important to your overall quality of life. And Helix Sleep offers something that doesn't exist anywhere else. That's a mattress which is personalized to your preferences and sleeping style, and it's not going to set you back thousands of dollars. So go to helixsleep.com weeds, take their simple two- to three-minute sleep quiz, and they're going to build a custom a mattress that's going to be the best thing you've ever slept on. What's even better is that for couples, they personalize each side of the mattress. So you're getting what you really need from a mattress, which isn't a a generic thing to sleep on, but it's something that fits what you actually want. Uh, So everyone from GQ to Cosmopolitan to the New York Times, all talking about Helix, and once you try it, you're going to know why. Your custom mattress arrives direct to your door in a week. Shipping is completely free. They think you're going to love it, so they give you 100 nights to try it out. If you decide you don't like it, they'll pick it up and refund you in full. Uh, But, you know, they think you're going to be really enthusiastic about this mattress. So here's what you need to know. You go to helixsleep.com slash weeds right now. You'll get $50 toward your custom mattress. That's helixsleep.com slash weeds for $50 off your order. Helixsleep.com slash weeds. All right, let's talk about white paper. We've got a good one. Snap benefits and crime, colon, evidence from changing disbursement schedules. It's by Jillian Carr and Annalisa Packham. And uh, what they're looking at here basically is that um, there's different ways that states can administer SNAP, the the food stamps program. Um, The most common way is to sort of give people their month's worth of nutrition assistance all at once at the beginning of the month. Um, not to do it all at once at the beginning of the year, but also not all at once at the beginning of the week. Uh, if you look at a uh, really naive economics textbook, uh, they will tell you these are all completely the same because people uh, are forward thinking and will smooth their consumption across time. Uh, obviously, real life is not like that. And you can see any amount of evidence indicating that on states that do the normal monthly cycle, people go buy a ton of groceries right after they get their food stamps, and people are scrimping and saving to get through to the end of the month. Um, the sort of hypothesis that this paper is investigating is the idea that there is a a link to crime related to the sort of food stamp cycle. And they observe that you you see in the data that Crime at grocery stores, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, seems to go up uh, both at the end of the month when people, like, need to steal food to get by and also at the beginning of the month when there is, like, a surge of people into the stores uh, with their food stamps. And so they look at a change, a policy change in Illinois, which just sort of evened it out so you get your you get your stuff on a, on a weekly basis. Um and they show that those crime spikes diminish considerably, that people uh, just sort of go about their business in a more steady state way. They also look at this situation in Indiana where they – it's a, we, Indiana has some kind of schedule that's based on alphabetical order of your last name, uh, which there doesn't appear to be any policy reason to do it that way. But it's sometimes useful for comparative purposes to have a state with a completely arbitrary variation because it lets you uh, just sort of test the, the robustness of this on, on an individual level. Um, so it's pretty neat. I mean, it's— it, it, I mean, What happens in the Indiana 
scenario. Well, no, I mean, it's nothing in particular. It's just they're able to use it as statistical controls to help understand what's what's really happening Mm -hmm. with, with individuals in this. It's like... You know, there's an interesting parallel reality. Speaking of the themes we've had this whole episode, it's like, what if you weren't doing blockbuster controversial bills? And what if you weren't just like a political party full of morons? And like, what if you just like wanted to think of like, what are some things we could do that would make life better and that like don't really implicate like major (laughs) questions of values? And something like... It turns out that if we dispersed federal income assistance on a weekly basis rather than a monthly basis, people would not have these uh, times of acute need and there would be less shoplifting. Like, that seems good. Like, we could probably agree to that. Uh, but no time on the congressional docket is spent with this kind of matter. That, that is, I mean, I just want to say that I, I found this paper very sad to read. I mean, I, th- I think this paper is like, it is a very analytical look at a kind of rolling human tragedy in this country, which is just you are looking at a lot of people who need to steal food um, for themselves and their families, right? And it gets really bad if you disperse food stamps in sort of one in, in, in at one point so that, you know, at week three and week four, you don't have enough to feed your kids. I mean, it seems that likely some of the explanation for the week one jump in shoplifting is people go in and they can't get as much as they need. Um, and so they, you know, so there's a little bit of stealing to uh, at times to, to get more. And I don't know. I mean, we are the richest, most powerful country the world has ever known. And we have people who need to steal food. Like, this is not new. Like, I know people, you know, like, this is not like a, a, like, this paper just found it out. And, you know, yes, there are ways that we could um, restructure the benefits so that it would be more regular and people would be able to smooth their consumption better. But also, there's just, like, a lot of need out there. And, And to your point... I don't know. We could be doing a lot better. I mean, the, the part of food stamps, by the way, that always kills me, and and this is true when we talk about TANF and, and the, the Modern Welfare Program, is like these are programs that are really, really, really about children to a large extent. I mean, not only um, food stamps obviously helps a lot of people who aren't children, but you have a lot of kids who are in family situations where there's just not enough money or there's not a responsible provider or whatever it might be. And you talk about things that we should be able to come to agreement on. Like, let's not have extreme child poverty in the United States. Like, we could do that. We could have a universal child allowance in the way they do in other countries. And, like, it would work. Like, that really does cut child poverty dramatically. And nobody thinks kids are responsible for their own poverty, right? Nobody thinks, like, the issue with a five-year-old who doesn't have enough to eat is, like, he's not enough personal responsibility. There's, like, no interest. Like, there's just, like, no discussion of this. Um well, and there's like it's a, a lack bomb. of needed discussion around programs for kids. One of them that's about to happen on Saturday, September 30th, is the Children's Health Insurance Program, which covers a few million right. low to middle income kids. It needs its budget reauthorized. Um, it has a funding cliff that comes up at the end of this month. Graham Cassidy seems to have taken all, um, absorbed all energy, and, and that is just totally fallen off the table. It seemed like the Senate Finance Committee, um, Senators... Ron Wyden and um, Orrin Hatch had come to an agreement of how to extend the program that they were working towards. And and then all of a sudden, Graham Cassidy came on the scene. And now this, um, you know, children's bill. And again, like, no one thinks it's a child's fault that they don't live in a situation where they have health insurance. um, And it's really getting sidelined by a lot of Obamacare appeal stuff. You know, I kind of read this paper on the one hand, like, feeling like, oh, well, this is a great intervention 
it's an easy way to make a public program that we're already funding work better. On the other hand, like, the other intervention is just to fund the program better. Like, you could see, and, like, I realize that is a harder one, but, you know, I was curious if, you know, if you have this in the long term, if you end up just seeing the crime spikes on, like, Friday or Saturday before you get the new week, like, assuming it's on a Monday, that you end up with the crime spikes at the end of the week. I think, like, the core challenge here is people are hungry and don't have enough to eat and therefore steal food. And it sounds like this, um, you know, solves that in a way, but I guess I'm a little well, skeptical I mean, it, of like dollar, like the finite amount of dollars, like stretching further. Well, because it, I of mean, this. it helps people plan better. I mean, I, I do think like one reason that these kind of fixes tend not to get made, right. Is that like, I, I feel like it's difficult in, in the American context to like discuss the, um, behavioral aspects of poverty because it's like we're in a sort of uh, values war, right? In which like conservative, because we cannot count in the United States on a conservative party that wants to make a good faith effort to help low-income people. So anything that might cast low-income people's behavior and decision-making in a negative light, people fear is going to be used as a pretext to just withdraw all assistance from them. But like, I think what this paper is saying is that you know, the level of nutritional assistance that the United States provides, while not extraordinarily generous by any means, is in fact enough to stave off starvation, but that people being people are like not great planners and that giving them a little bit of help all the time rather than big bunches of help sporadically makes it easier for them to like see what are their real grocery budget needs, right? And and one way that we get this in a in a big way. I mean, they, they mention that, like, this is an experiment based on food stamps, but a lot of our programs ha- have this structure, is that the earned income tax credit, right, which is one of the biggest things we do to help the working poor, because it's structured as, like, a tax cut, quote-unquote, you get it a tax refund season once a year, um, which is not a really it's not a good way to help people on a dollar-for-dollar basis, right? It's a good program, which gives people extra financial assistance, connects people to the labor market. It, it does a lot of useful things. But by making it an annual disbursement, you create a sort of, uh, like, it's a, a Christmas dynamic, right? Rather than giving people the consistent boost in incomes and living standards that would help them most. And, like, I don't think that poor people are different from middle-class people in this regard. Like, anybody who saw a huge share of their annual income coming at, like, a random one-off check would struggle to, like, actually use that money in the most prudent, sort of, best way possible. And, you know, there's... But this is where we get back to the fact that I, I do support making these programs more generous, but, like, the fact that there is so little interest in improving them is telling, right? Because if you want to talk about funding, you can always get into a discussion about, oh, the budget deficit or the needs of the troops or or, or whatever else, right? But there is no fiscal cost to doing this in this different, better way. But it's not a coincidence that it's Illinois, which had like a super democratic state government that went and did this, and that you know, Graham Cassie, all this stuff about like, oh, you know, we'll devolve it to the states and like they'll make it better. It would be fascinating to learn that like 
Mississippi and Alabama were like the most forward-thinking states in terms of their administration of anti-poverty programs, that these are very conservative states that, you know, want to be tight-fisted with money, but also very high-poverty states. So the best minds of conservative politics have really come together in Mississippi and made the most kick-ass implementation. But it doesn't work like that, right? There's just an incredible streak of cruelty and indifference running through conservative politics and very little interest in in making this work. And, you know, that's just like a, a big part of what, what you're seeing here. All right. I think that's our episode. Woo! <laughs> On that that's note. a tonal change. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to The Weeds. Thank you to our producer, Peter Leonard, um, to Sarah and Matt for being here, to all of you for being here. Do we have any- And this is our new day, right? It's our new day. We are now doing this show on Tuesdays as part of an all-new uh, Vox.com podcasting lineup. We're going to have Ezra Klein show on Mondays. We're going to have The Weeds on Tuesdays and Fridays. We're going to have I Think You're Interesting on Wednesdays and Worldly on Thursdays. So you can listen to our podcasts every day of the week. I hope everyone- weekday. Every weekday. Every weekday. <laughs> all right. I hope everyone moves someplace that gives them a really inconvenient commute uh, so that they can they can enjoy all this podcasting. Bounty. And if you've made it this far in the episode, we will tell you we have a brand new podcast joining our lineup just oh my. three weeks from now. Three weeks? Stay tuned. Soon. Very soon. You're going to need to move even further from your office. Yes. <laughs> your Mondays need to have a very long commute soon. <laughs> See you Friday. as always for listening to The Weeds. Uh, I also want to take this moment to insert a a really proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Uh, Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox.com and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care about most. Uh, You know, for us, that's that's really public policy, but for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next, or Curbed, all about real estate, home design, all that great stuff. Uh, What unites all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality, because we believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audiences. So if you aren't going deep, where are you going? Check out Vox Media.